why don't we just go ahead and pray? We're going to dive right in. Turn in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, parents, I encourage you, help kids. Put them up on your lap. Open them up to Esther 9 and 10. Uh, teach them how to find it. Help them find it. And then make them read it. But uh, I'm going to pray. And then um, we're going to have the scripture read. And then we'll just dive right into our sermon. So Father God, uh, you are here among us by the power of your spirit. You're here in multiple places throughout all of Tremont, people who are watching online with their families and, um, and others, neighbors and friends, and those even who are here this morning. We're gathered around your word. Your word is our anchor. Your word is our truth. Your word is our life. Your word is our hope. Your word is Jesus. And so we come, Jesus, to have a touch from you, to be moved by you, to be um, shaped by you. Help us to learn from you this morning. Help me to get out of the way and your words to be on display as powerfully active, sharper than any two-edged sword and revealing the intents and the motives of my heart so that I can live for you, Jesus. And it's in your strong name that we pray. Amen. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Who's gained mastery over those who hated them? The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed five hundred men, and also killed Parshendatha, and Dalphon, and Espatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hair. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. 
Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month, Adar, and also the fifteenth day of year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. He and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai, the Jew, gained authority, confirming the second letter about Purim, Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people." So as we wrap up, we're going to begin to see this idea that full circle comes this idea that with humility is honor. And that's something that is hard for us to, um, to grasp. Because if, if we have a view of humility as primarily um, weak and understated and quiet, then we honor as something that actually happens. But my hope today is that we will see, and, and really if, you're, if you want to take notes, you'll, you'll probably see this throughout the sermon today, that God's wisdom will always be the humble boldness of Jesus. And look at how Jesus was lifted up. Look at how Jesus will be lifted up when he returns. And so I, what I want to do is just make a quick connection for you. Um, here's where it becomes really important. Because God, throughout the scriptures, over and over and over again, does this thing where he has a smaller picture of a much larger reality. 
See, we are people, it's, it's so important when I get to know you and you get to know me that you know my story. You know where I come from, what I do, how I live, who I'm uh, in life with and marriage and kids and stuff like that. And that's how I am identified. And, and one of the things that is so helpful is that I am a smaller piece of a much larger family. So it'd be hard to talk about Doug without talking about Doug's brothers and sisters and then Doug's parents and then Doug's extended family. And then and it just keeps growing. And there's a much larger reality. So when you say the rumbled family, you're not just talking about Doug. You're talking about a wide range of people. And I guess the best way that I can help us understand this is you see this as a lens <clears throat> that we use to view Scripture over and over and over again. There are stories and things that are, that are a smaller story of a much larger narrative. And in that way, that's what we see with Haman. We see someone who um, so miscalculated the instrument that he thought would bring him exaltation that he was crushed when it failed. And you're saying, well, why does that really matter? Well, think of it this way. When, when was another time that someone so miscalculated the instrument that they thought would bring them exaltation? Well, clearly it's Satan with the cross. Satan believes that I am going to crush Jesus. I am going to stop the plan of God. I am going to kill God. I'm going to put him on a cross. And guess what? That should have been the greatest piece of humbling for Jesus actually works out to be his greatest piece of exaltation because what does he do? He overcomes it. And so you're like, man, that's just, that's backwards logic. That is, it's logic that goes against what I know to be true. But listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. He says this, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. I love that. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that's the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, so give me something power, miracle, prove to me that you're Jesus. And Greeks seek wisdom. Make my mind connect with my heart. That's what the Greek is saying. And then he goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So pause for a moment. With Jesus, you have both wisdom and power. And that's what I'm saying we see over and over and over again in the book of Esther. You look at something and you think, here is a no-name Jew, Mordecai, who adopts um, an orphaned girl whose parents, have, she's not of noble birth. She doesn't deserve to be in the kingdom. And he doesn't deserve any place of standing at all. And you're starting to see a smaller picture of a much larger reality of what God is up to. And so listen to how Paul goes on. He says, For the foolish things, or sorry, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now consider, just think Esther when you hear this next couple of verses. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. 
This is Esther. She's not of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Mordecai and Esther, by Haman's standards, would have been considered weak. I'm going to snuff them out. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm getting rid of the Jews. They are weak. They're in my way. And all of a sudden, we start to see this picture that the instrument that Haman thought was going to bring him exaltation actually brings his undoing. There's a song that I love, and one of the lyrics in the song is talking about this part of Haman's life, and it says that the devil is going to hang on his own gallows. And it's just that here you have Haman who thinks he's going to exalt himself, and the very thing he builds to exalt himself is what he dies on. So you think of Satan He constructs the cross as a perfect opportunity so that he can get himself exalted and lifted up. And it's the stumbling block for him. (laughs) It's the thing that trips him up. Jesus stooped to that level. And that's for us. So today we're going to be looking at um, Esther 9 and 10. We're looking at the victory, um, the feast, and the honor. And more than anything, I just want us to key in on this idea that God's wisdom will always be the humble boldness of Jesus. Let's kind as we go forward. So first, the victory. This is what the whole book has been building toward. Last week, we saw that there was this edict, and then in great humble boldness, Esther steps into that and says, uh, no, you can't do that. Um, in fact, Haman's wicked. That's actually her greatest moment of strength is when she, in, in great boldness, in, in an opportunity for her to die, she leans forward and she says, no, it's a foe, it's the enemy, it's this wicked Haman. And she points it out and all of a sudden the king's like, are you kidding me? And the table totally turns. Think of those words as they're rolling off the tongue of Esther, how, how fearful she may have been, but how in faith she stepped toward it. But it only led to her and Mordecai being delivered and protected. And so she goes yet again and she asks for an additional edict, an additional command from the king that says, can we defend ourselves? And the king makes it so. And he signs it with his signet ring. Yep, you got it. You could defend yourselves. So the very law that I made to kill you because I was ignorant and and self-indulgent and drunk, quite honestly, uh, now you can undo in your humble boldness. So there's victory. In verses 1 through 19 of chapter 9, you see this phrase in in verse 2. It says, and no one could stand against them. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they commanded such respect? Not at all. No one could stand against them because the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus had known already the fact that Haman hung on his own gallows. And so hanging on his own gallows, don't you think that instills a little bit of fear in your enemy? You're like, oh, So there's the guy who decided to kind of take matters into his own hands, and he's dead. I think I'm going to play it safe. (laughs) So fear fell on everybody around them. And I guess I would just say this, that humility doesn't just play defense. Humility is not just make sure no one scores. Like one of my favorite is this idea, uh, uh, there's this movie called Hoosiers. And it walks into the 1952 championship team in Indiana basketball. And um, these guys are so bent on the idea that they have to score to win that they don't do any fundamentals or defense. And the coach, 
through a series of long coaching exercises, helps them to see that there's fundamentals in defense that promote your offense. Your offense is not going to do anything unless you have fundamentals in defense. And I guess I would say the same is true when we start to think of humility. We really want to consider humility is this piece. It's not passivity. Humility is not, well, I guess we should just be quiet and wait until it changes. Humility is, has God decreed something? Has God said something of you in Scripture? Has God given you ground that you should be taking as a believer? Yes, then take it. There's Humility is walking after the commandments of God, not ahead of them or outside of them. You see, the enemies of the Jews thought they were going to gain mastery over the Jews. And in verse 1, you see this phrase, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery. And if you're thinking about it, really, it's this idea that the Jews' crisis became an opportunity for God's promise. That what was happening was this very thing that was going to be um, something made much of God. And you're like, well, I'm not sure if I entirely agree with that. I'm not sure if, if it's just, well, Look at how connected it is to the rest of the Old Testament. Keep your finger where it's at in um, Esther, but listen with me as I read from Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, verses 8 through 14, it says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us, Men, when fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And, and, and so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and, and he sat while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on both sides. So his hands were steady from the going down of the sun. Isn't that crazy? And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Like, well, why does that matter? Because at the very beginning of Esther, when we began to learn about Haman, Haman was an Agagite from Amalek, meaning he was a descendant of Amalek. And God had promised, I'm going to wipe him out. But here we are years later, and there's still a problem for Israel. And so God is fulfilling his promise as they walk in humble boldness. You start to see that he is going to make good on what he said. Joshua. He was told to choose men and to go fight. What would happen if Joshua had the American Christian version of humility, which is basically let's just sit still and be quiet and wait till something happens? He would have been routed, totally destroyed. And so under the control of the Spirit and listening in obedience to Moses, he walks out the command. But did you see what happened? Here's Moses who's sitting there raising the rod, like pointing to God, like, look, here's your strength. 
And whenever he's doing that, and Joshua looks back up at the top of the hill and he sees, and oh, they're, they're, they're destroying the enemy. But as soon as he takes his eyes off it, and as soon as he settles in, guess what happens? They start to get defeated. And to the point that Moses' hand grew weary. And so then you have a stone sat down. He sits down. He's got one arm here, one arm here. He's got Aaron on one side, her on the other side, holding his arms up. For what purpose? Not to exalt Moses, not to exalt Aaron or her, but to actually point to God. Who is your strength? And so maybe from a truth to life perspective this morning, that's a question you should be asking. What crisis in your life is an opportunity for God's providence? Very clear right here. Do you have someone or some ones, plural, who you would say, yeah, this is my Aaron and this is my her. This is, this is someone who's going to hold my hand up. Essentially, this is someone who is going to be my support in order to drive my heart, my eyes, my affections back to Jesus when the weariness of the world, when the weight of the battle becomes too much and too consistent and overwhelming. I need other people. You were designed for community on purpose. And then if you're really paying attention, like all through Esther chapter 9, you see it three different times in the text that they laid no hands on the plunder. You're like, well, why in the world uh, would they mention that? Well, before, when Mordecai makes the edict and he says, you guys now, you can, make, you can go fight for yourselves for freedom, he actually says to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the enemies of the Jews, which the Jews fully obeyed. But he also says that you can take their plunder. But the Jews didn't do that. And you're like, why? Why would that matter? Why would that be something that would be of note for us? Well, it just shows that there is a huge difference between justice and revenge. You saw it in Haman. Haman is not honored because Mordecai doesn't bow down. And Haman says, I'm, not going, after, I'm going after all the Jews. That's revenge. You see Mordecai and Esther given the opportunity to plunder, take everything. They don't touch it. Why? Because justice is not revenge. Confucius, uh, before even the time of Christ, Confucius, an ancient philosopher, actually said, if you want to embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. It's just this picture of you're only hurting yourself. If you think that gaining back some level of respect from someone, you'll actually bury them and yourself at the same time. So we see that God is about the victory that he promised. But quite honestly, it wasn't until the 11th hour, was it? We like things nice and tidy, wrapped up with a bow, maybe a little letter in the mail that says... Um, this is what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, and, and you'll have plenty of provisions and everything will be just fine and it's going to be okay. And God's like, actually, we're going to keep the command in place that says these people can route you. And we're going to give you the command that you can route them in return. What are you going to do? It's a whole different picture of faith, isn't it? It's a whole different picture of humble boldness. God's wisdom will always the humble boldness of Jesus. Did he pave a path for Jesus that was easy? Did he pave a path for Jesus that said, you'll have no difficulty in getting to the cross? Did he pave a path even for his own son that would have been easier than us? 
No. So why should we expect something different when we come to him and are his disciples? So we move from the victory to the feast. Verses 20 through 32, you start to see these things really flipping, turning. You see, humility flips the script. You have this idea that sorrow is turned into gladness. It's in verse mourning is turned into a holiday. Now, some of us have experienced difficulty. Some of us have experienced loss. And some of us have been horribly sinned against. And if I were to say to you that the sorrow of the mistreatment that you've experienced, the wounding that you've received, if I were to say to you that that's going to turn into gladness and joy and actually a holiday, something that you mark on your calendars, and for the Jew even still to this day, is celebrated for two whole days, a huge celebration of God's deliverance. If I were to say what you faced, what you're enduring, that's actually still going to be celebrated today. You would look at me and go, uh, I'm not so sure I that. I would imagine that Mordecai and Esther, at any time during their journey, probably would have agreed with you. Probably would have agreed with me. And it's important to see that they walked in humble boldness. They experienced the victory and the deliverance. But notice, their sorrow is now turned into impenetrable joy. You say, well, what evidence do you have of such things? Glad you asked. Jesus. Jesus, always Jesus. You can flip in your Bibles if you want, or you can just write this down into these words. John chapter 16. Now this is the eve before Jesus is wrongly arrested, wrongly convicted, wrongly murdered. Okay? Biggest night of his life. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. He's speaking to the disciples. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born. So also, you have sorrow now. Can we not agree with that? I mean, read the news headlines for a day. Just walk around in the United States for a day. Walk around in this world for a day. Do we not have sorrow now? Do we not have something that's just overwhelmingly sad to watch the mistreatment of other humans just because of the color of skin or just because of politics or just because of financial status or just because, who knows? Any reason. Sometimes no reason at all. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So not only is it um, impenetrable joy, but it's not able to be taken. It's not able to be stolen. It's not something that is a commodity that is uh, able to be pulled off a shelf. This is residing deep in your heart. This is an anchor of who you are. This is part of your identity. No one can take your identity from you. And so if your identity is bound up in the joy of Jesus, guess what? You're going to be fine. You 
You see, the Jews in Esther and Mordecai's day were sorrowful and they were lamenting the treatment through Haman. But it turned to joy when they routed their enemies. And the disciples, they're lamenting and sorrowful when Jesus is wrongly arrested, convicted, murdered by the religious elite. And guess what? Their sorrow turns to overwhelming and overflowing joy when Jesus exits the grave. I mean, even when you picture Jesus on the shore and the disciples coming back from fishing and he's cooked up breakfast for them and he's hanging out there waiting for them to come back and their eyes are made aware that this is Jesus. This is in John 20. What happens? They're overwhelmingly joyful, willing to carry forth anything that he asks. Jews then are commanded day after day, year after year, celebrate this feast. I love how it says, sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the celebration that humility brings is actually an invitation to the marginalized. It's an invitation to those people who are on the periphery. It's an invitation to those people who just don't belong. And in 127 provinces of all of King Ahasuerus, the Jews were a minority. And so when when Mordecai is speaking up and he's saying, I want you to celebrate these days for a time to come and you need to feast and party and to give gifts to one another of food. Food's a great thing, isn't it? And guess what? Give gifts to the poor. Well, that's interesting. Why? Because the poor are often extremely marginalized for no choice of their own sometimes. And here we are, people of great privilege, Consider yourself the wealthiest person on the planet because of who and what you have in Jesus Christ. Is it really good for you to keep it to yourself? Jesus had this same thing in mind in, Matthew, or in Luke chapter 4 when he gets up and he begins to explain his purpose and his intent as the Son of Man here on earth. He says, I'm, you know, my goal here is to bring good news, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You're like, oh, well, every one of those groups is pretty much marginalized. Every one of those groups is pretty much pushed off to the periphery, pushed off to the side. And Jesus is saying, my goal is them. I love it. In verse 28, he says, uh, in chapter 9 of Esther, it says, these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. I mean, literally, they're commanded to party every year. Whoever thought that God was a boring God who was all about just like keeping the rules and sitting in nice straight rows and making sure everything is perfect. He's also a God who's like all about the party. He's about the party. He's about the feasting. He's about the giving of gifts. This is our God. Our God is lavish. And so maybe it's helpful for us to think um, that the, the Feast of Purim is still celebrated today. Two days, it's celebrated every year that they celebrate their deliverance. Now, have you ever thought throughout Old Testament and New Testament, have you ever thought through this idea that um, all of the festivals and celebrations that God commands have nothing to do with human merit? I'll just give you a little list of just five. Passover. 
Passover celebrates this idea that these people were in slavery, and because of the blood of a lamb marking the door frames of their house, they are covered by the blood and therefore delivered out through great persecution, through great trial, through great affliction, and pursued all the way to the Red Sea. The sea is opened up for them, and they cross through on dry land, and their enemies are routed by a splash of water and the power of our God. And God says, I want you to celebrate Passover every year. Why? Was it because you had some great human merit? No, not even close. Well, how about Purim? We just learned about that. These were the enemies that were going to crush the Jews. And in a stroke of irony and and humor, God says, hey, the rolling of the dice is now a celebration for the Jews. You're going to party because of your deliverance. Did Esther or Mordecai get to their place because of any of their own merit? No. Not at all. They got there because of the grace and favor of God. How about the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths is something that is celebrated at the end of harvest every year. Um, Even now for the Jews, it's celebrated. It's, it's It's a happy and joyous celebration about God's bounty and plenty for them throughout all of the growing season and a looking toward the future of growing. But do you know what it represented? Across the Red Sea, they still had to make it to the promised land. How did they survive? In tents in the desert. And so the booths are little tents that they sleep in to remind themselves, God, you're awesome, your feast, your bounty that you provided when we couldn't have done a thing by ourselves. There's no tillable land in the desert. There's no nice, neat well. There's rocks and water that shoots out from them because you're good. And he also tells them, to celebrate communion. That's where we remember the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that brings us our redemption and our freedom. Anything of human merit there? No. We are celebrate on our regular basis baptism. Matt didn't announce, but next week we actually have a baptism. As we come back to gather for the first time, we get to celebrate someone being made new symbolically as we dunk them in the water and pull them back out. And Jesus is exalted not because of human merit. And we are a people who cannot rest in the slightest on human merit. And over and over and over again, you see it in Esther 1 through 10. Nothing they did but their obedience to the command of Christ, and then he makes it happen. So maybe a good truth to life question when you're thinking about the feast. We already talked about the victory. Thinking about the feast Is there something for you or for some of your disciple-making friends that you're doing life with that you need to celebrate? Like, what do you mean? Well, was there a particular sin that had a hold on you that has less of a hold now? Do you celebrate that? Do you actually talk about the fact that God drew you out of darkness into his marvelous light so you could do what? Proclaim his goodness? Is that something that you do regularly with your friends and others who know Jesus? Because that looks to be, when I look at the feast, a command of God. I want you to celebrate, not human merit, but my goodness, my favor, my provision, my deliverance, my love, my grace, my glory, all the time. You're like, no, I'm just happy that I'm saved. That's garbage. We want you to be happy that you're saved and go a step further and say, I'm happy that I'm saved and I'm a victorious Christian. 
I'm living a victorious life in him because of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. So we have the victory, we have the feast, and finally we have the honor. You see, the strong picture that's portrayed is found in the last verse of chapter 10. The very last verse of Esther. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews. That's interesting. He had kind of a nothing job toward the end, and all he did was, you know, stand by a gate and make sure everything was okay. And um, no, it's powerful. He was great among the Jews, popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? Well, humility seeks these things welfare and peace. Now, for a highly politically charged culture like ours, we hear the word welfare and we're like, oh, I don't like welfare, that's no good. Divorce it from its political context for a minute. Welfare is about the good of people. It's about their thriving and their flourishing. Why do you think Jeremiah, when he's speaking to exiles, says, seek the good of the city where, the, where, where God has you. Plant gardens, raise vineyards, do what? Celebrate my goodness, my protection, and my provision where you are, despite the fact that you're a minority. You see, welfare is about the condition of prospering in life. When you're marginalized, that is good news. Speaking, when you are deprived and in the darkness and someone comes, Jesus, and declares to you sight and light and freedom, is there anything greater? Is there anything greater than those things? Would that not make you want to live victorious, feasting and celebrating in who God is and enjoying the honor that he gives, not that you earn? So Mordecai seeks the welfare of his people. I love that. This is talking to the Jews. He's, he sought the welfare of the people. These were marginalized people in the kingdom of, of Ahasuerus. And he's seeking their welfare there. And then second, it says, and spoke peace to all his people. So that's more of the broad context where he is second in command over all of these 127 provinces and he's seeking peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. It means all is as all should be. It is peace in the truest and fullest context. It's not the absence of conflict. It's actually this idea that what God is doing is holistically greater than we can comprehend and he's got all things well in hand. Isaiah used this word over and over again. So notice the conquest of the enemies was not about their fame, was not about their name, was not about their glory. It was about the honor of God. And so now as a result, because Mordecai is humble, he seeks the welfare, the good of his own people, and he speaks peace to those around him. So I'm going to have us wrap up with a song. Jade and Annabelle are going to come up and do a song. Um, I want you to be thinking as, as they're playing. You'll see the lyrics up on the screen um, when you're watching. 
Um, but just be considering, how is the wisdom of God always the humble boldness of Jesus? Steps toward victory and, and celebration might he be asking of me and of my disciple-making friends that I'm doing life with? All right, girls.
So, Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Esther that teaches us that we can go after your promises with humble boldness. And because of Jesus, we have an anchor for our souls that is firm and secure. We up here today that hearts would be encouraged toward greater obedience, that hearts would be encouraged toward greater surrender, and that you would get glory as a result. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, have a great week.